I love the idea, and it's funny because we were both talking before the interview that we know a lot of folks in the special operations community, and the first time that I met some of these guys who were just total meat eaters, I was shocked that like 99% of the time, they're sitting around, like training, and they gotta learn to be totally zened out. Like they're big med meditation folks, big mindfulness folks. And I was like, really? I, th I think you're like Rambo super killers. And they're like, dude, that's like 1% of what we do, but you have to be able to live in an even keel and be able to go from zero to 100. Like there's no 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Damon Diamore. Damon, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. So you've got a pretty interesting background, Hollywood, Wall Street, mentoring top executives and CEOs. Can we start with what, what you do these days? What do you, what's, what's a day in the life? What, what, do you, what are you doing in an average month with your clients? Sure. I basically have three areas that I coach people in. And we just discussed, I don't really like the word coach, but I mentor executives, senior executives and leaders in. The first is around general performance, which means a lot of things to a lot of people. But for me specifically and my clients, it's building rituals and sustaining habits, uh, dealing with identity issues, imposter syndrome, mindset, creating mindset and lifestyle, not just using resilience as a tool in case something horribly goes wrong on a tactical basis. That's one pillar of performance. Second pillar is what I call storytelling for stakeholders because of my background in storytelling, both in fiction and nonfiction and documentary. I, I weave together hero type journey stories for individual executives in their career trajectory, their companies, their industries, able to tell stories to multiple stakeholders. And the third and most popular currently area is crisis leadership, which has been, you know, as you can imagine, between COVID and other things the last year and a half. And that is basically taking the performance issues and the storytelling and figuring out solutions for issues they're dealing with in a crisis or in a pending crisis that they, that, that they see on the horizon. And a little bit more than half my clients are, are women. So I also have different programs that are tailored for female leaders than for male leaders, because the way that women tell their stories and the way that people engage in those stories is a lot different regarding internal versus external accomplishments. Very cool. When you think about, you know, I know you advise seed stage venture backed and fortune 100 companies. When you think about what you've discovered about yourself by mentoring these different kinds of top leaders, what's, what's one of the lessons that stood out to you? One of the lessons that stood out to me was because of my background, like I started my career on Wall Street in a trading pit where it was totally acceptable to and, and rewarded to act like an animal and throw things and scream. And, you know, there was no corporate decorum at all. And when people in the trading pit lied or did something overtly against you, it was overt. There was no like corporate backstabbing like politics. So the repercussions for that were immediate and, and strict and they had to be. One of the biggest lessons I've learned from um, a very high level public C-suite executive was that when people disappoint you along your journey, because a lot of folks that you're going to meet, no matter what, what type of key members they are, or board members or investors, 
they're not as passionate about you. They don't wake up every morning wanting to change the world like you do. So they you ultimately get let down by people along the way for not being as energetic or, or as advocates as you want them to be. It's not to get angry at that. It's to actually embrace it and thank them in your mind for doing that and showing them honestly, showing you honestly who they are. Because at some point later down the line, it would have been a much bigger cost for learning that lesson. So, you know, having more of a sense of forgiveness and empathy for non-performers or people who are actually, you know, roadblocks. We used to call people zeros or negatives. Like if somebody is a block, but they're not hindering your outcome, they're just a flat zero. But if they're doing something actively to prevent that outcome, then they're a negative and you have to deal with them. So one of the best lessons I've learned is just to not be angry, to just be thankful for it and think of it as a gift. And now you have a problem and you're good at problem solving. So now you can, now you can find a solution. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. You know, we already talked about how I like that your LinkedIn profile has a Ryan Holiday book. <laughs> like, I, I'm such a, I'm, I became such a stoicism fan after Good to Great when they talk about Jim Stockdale. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember the Stockdale yeah. paradox in Good to Great. And then when Ryan Holiday stuff came out, I was like, man, this just makes it so accessible. It makes it, you know, so applicable. But what's interesting is something that could be so on the surface so negative people not being their best self, people being self-focused, you know, letting you down, stuff like this. This idea of like, yeah, that part's, but what else is available with that package, right? Yeah. And that's, Anyways. you know, over the last year, I've had a lot of leaders that, you know, if you're in the C-suite now at a large company, chances are you weren't there in 2008 for the last crisis, you know? So they've been surrounded by people who give off this sheen of, wow, that guy's a rock. If we ever get into trouble, he's going to be there. And they've seen these people around them completely fall apart. So, you know, the, the top three basic stoic principles are, you know, focus on what you can control, acknowledge what you can't, and then be okay with that. So part of that forgiveness thing is there's this thing spinning out of control over here. What can What's in my power to affect? And anything that's not, you have to let it go. I saw this great interview with Michael Ovitz years ago who created CAA, and I think it was Charlie Rose asked him, do you get any sleep at night? All these big careers are in your hands. You're this, you know, they're, they're all – he said – Charlie, there's like 1% of what I do in my world that I can control. Then I go to sleep. Like everything else is out of my control. So yeah, like that's that's another big, you know, that's how Ryan Holiday ties into things like that. And I, I love looking externally for different perspectives that I can apply to my discipline. I think that's kind of how you become an expert in authority and being able to translate different different filters and perspectives for what you're doing so that it becomes accessible to a broader. P.S. I know you like books. If you haven't read the Stockdale book, Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot, it's <laughs> really excellent about how he took his his stoicism to being a prisoner of war camp for seven or eight years and what that looked like in application, you know? Wow. It's great. So I, I like I'm always thinking of these books that I should write someday, right? So I want to run my I want to run my stoicism book past you and see what you think. Awesome. I feel like my favorite analogy for stoicism is I started thinking about it like as a surfer. So grew up in Canada, moved to Huntington Beach so I could surf every morning before work, right? And I think about the wave. The wave is what's happening. The wave is these things that you can't change. Worrying about them doesn't change. Yelling at them, being angry about them doesn't change. And like there's basically nothing I'm going to do to change that wave. But there's a whole lot I can do about positioning myself. How hard am I paddling? How am I going to surf it? What am I going to do? Including what am I going to do if I bail? If I get, cra you know, if I get crashed on by this wave, what's my plan? Like there is, 
there is major meter aspects that I can influence. And there's just no conception of like, oh, I wish that wave would come this way. <laughs> like that just, it doesn't cross your mind as a surfer because it's so blatantly outside of your control. It's not, and there's so like, surfing is like big stretches of boredom with like a tiny sprint <laughs> to try and catch a wave, right? And so like, you have no time to sit and worry about other things when it's like, oh, we got to go right now. Anyways, what do you think of my stoic analogy? I love the idea. And it's funny because we were both talking before the interview that we know a lot of folks in the special operations community. And the first time that I met some of these guys who were just total meat eaters, I was shocked that like 99% of the time they're sitting around like training and they got to learn to be totally zenned out. Like they're big med meditation folks, big mindfulness folks. And I was like, really? I, th I think you're like Rambo super killers. And they're like, dude, that's like 1% of what we do. But you have to be able to live in an even keel and be able to go from zero to 100. Like there's no 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea for a book because ultimately in my life, I've worked in a number of, of high profile industries, but I've always gone deep for five or seven years. And uh, people always ask me, how do you know when to shift? And it's like, when you're working as hard as you can and pushing, but, but you're not getting the results, you need to listen to the flow. And because I'm Italian and a type A and a Taurus and all these things, I just keep bashing my head into the wall until I break through. And sometimes that works. Um, but you have to learn to to listen to the wave and watch the wave. And if, if it's pushing you a different direction, you have to embrace that and kind of give yourself over to it. And that's actually what happened when I started coaching because I was very resistant to being a coach, even though people were hiring for it and I wasn't calling it coaching. And finally, my therapist said, What's the worst that's going to happen for the next six months? Just embrace it and treat it like you would any other endeavor trying to become good at it, what you what you do. So create a curriculum and do your do your job, you know. So, yeah, I'll, I'll buy your book. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> well, can we talk, you know, I think in your profile somewhere, it talked about being at a startup business and going from zero to a million in revenue in like 90 days or something. Am I yeah. quoting, am I misquoting that? It was about that. It was about, about three and a half months. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So Wayfounder was initially a hybrid venture capital uh, for consumer products incubator that I had founded and funded and created. And it went great for a while. Then for a number of reasons, had a horrible, fiery ending. Um, but born out of that misery was CrowdFunnel, which was a lead generation firm for equity crowdfunding, which at the time in 2015, 16, all the regulations were starting to be laid out. And I had a, yeah. a, a and all the folks that were doing lead gen were from the the Kickstarter side, like all the you know donation based side. Nobody really understood finance and, and and how to talk to accredited investors, either how they wanted to be spoken to or literally how Finver wanted you to talk to them in a legal sense. Um, and because of my finance background, I was able to attract a partner that specialized in that. And we were consistently after the first month the number one or two lead provider for you know really high quality. You know, uh, private equity, real estate, and other types of reggae crowdfunding. And it spun out of control because the way the lead gen business worked was that I had to pay my publishers that I was getting leads driven to my, my landing pages seven days net once they completed the whole spectrum of, 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 of mandates. Um, but a lot of these platforms were still new and they were paying 30, 45, 60 days net, which is fine if you're doing 20 grand a month, like I can come up with seven grand. But all of a sudden somebody says, I want to buy a hundred grand a month from leads from you. And it's like, oh my, and it's really hard to fund with traditional investors, a lead gen business, because from web 1.0, 20 years ago, they have these horrible memories of, you know, click houses in China and all these things. Um, 
but it was amazing. It was amazing having, we had a client who was white labeling our leads and charging three times as much as we were charging for them. And they were the number one crowdfunding agency in their category. And as soon as they realized that our, our numbers, our metrics were real, one of the two partners quit and he joined our company like immediately. So it was, <laughs> it was great validation, but it was also, you know, it, it was great after Wayfinder went down to have that much of a success, but that comes with a whole bunch of other problems, like I mentioned. And ultimately I wound off selling that, that customer list to a third party who had a lot of a lot of resources to capital for both kind of factoring those th- those leads and also spending a tremendous amount on on customer acquisition. So that's such a fascinating space to me because you know fundraising in Canada has been so different. You know, mm-hmm. you guys had the 1933 Act that made it illegal to advertise a private investment down here, or you, you know, and you know you had to be an accredited right. Mm-hmm. Where like back home in Alberta and Canada. They have a whole nother kind of exemption. It's called, it's literally called an exempt investor. Okay. And it's, they call it the exempt market. Okay. And it's not 200 grand a year or net worth of a million minus your house. It's 75 grand a year. <laughs> okay. And if you don't make 75 grand a year, you just need a, it's almost like having a note from your principal. You need a note from your, from a CPA or a lawyer that, shows that you have signed a document saying, I acknowledge I could lose all my money. And then you can sell to 100% of people. It's great. Uh, they have a lot of issues so, with that? <laughs> like, no, because it's, it's been around for, you know, because it's been around for decades. And so the legal system accommodated it, right? Mm. And like our little province of Alberta has like same amount of people as Utah, right? I don't know, three, four million people, okay? They do like two billion a year in the exempt market wow. in fundraising, Okay. And so when the Jobs Act came in down here, I was like, oh, my, these Americans have no idea what reggae plus and stuff could become because the last people that were able to do that is like your grandpa's grandpa Mm -hmm. in the in the 20s. Right. So our systems, I mean, everybody on Wall Street, nobody has been raised to think about retail fundraising that way. I mean, everybody looks down their nose at retail fundraising. It's like we're all so proud to say, like, I just met with this pension fund or I just met with this institutional investor like Look at the math. There's 80 trillion in institutional money right now, and the estimate is 120 trillion in private capital. Like it's it's actually the bigger prize. It's just not as efficient to raise the money pre-internet and illegal pre-Jobs Act, right? So, anyways, I I think it's absolutely fascinating space. I think it's fascinating. I think there's still a ways to go because one of the reasons that I was excited to get out of it was that it was predatory in a lot of senses. Even these major platforms that I won't name that we were selling leads to, you know, they're letting these companies list on their platforms at insane valuations at a seed stage that these, you know, some barista that's putting two grand and they're never going to get their money back. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And there's going to ha- there's going to be a lot of pain um, from widows and grandmothers and things until it gets shaken out. When it does, I think it'll be a tremendous system to help companies raise money. And also people don't realize that it's all marketing that you're not just competing against other crowdfunding campaigns, you're competing against the eyeballs of that crowdfunding campaign's investors. So, you know, you so you might be competing against Capital One one week for, you know, uh, buying clicks, even though they have nothing to do with, you know, a brewery doing a crowdfunding campaign. And it's, it's yeah, I have a whole, I could talk forever about what's wrong with that business. It, <laughs> it's interesting to me because, no, it's interesting to me. You know, I think about that saying it wasn't Warren Buffett. I can't remember who it was who said experience is what experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and like, listen, 
who like tell me one entrepreneur that you know of that didn't buy some get rich quick investment early in in their career or five or yep. ten until it's like you finally get to this point of like being willing to get rich a little slower or getting out of the game completely you know and a lot of those people are going to learn those on crowdfunding and like here's the thing valuations will start to get rational once people get burned once people get burned you know hopefully they don't blow the whole wad do you know what I mean? A lot of people learn uh, that in crypto now. These people in Robinhood are buying crypto. They're 19, oh 20 God. years old and they're getting killed. And NFTs, crypto, all these people doing like speculative things, thinking like it's an investment. Like you're not buying a current income stream. You know, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett would not consider this an investment. This is a speculative endeavor, which you can make money on. People win the lottery every day. Yeah. But don't confuse yourself, right? I, anyway. used, to, I used to say to people like, uh, don't real estate. Sorry. Yeah. Cut you off. No, no. What were you going to say? Uh, I always tell people, like, don't treat your business or your life like a lottery ticket. Like, if you want to buy a lottery ticket, fine. But don't, don't like, have your whole strategic plan or don't treat it as an asset class. Um, a lottery ticket is not an asset yeah. class. <laughs> well, I tell you what, our, it, it is one of the reasons I'm so excited to be doing real estate crowdfunding. You know, we're doing a, we're doing a uh, 506C right now. Nice. for our. So it's a credit only, but it's, you know, I can advertise private, right? And... Like the next thing we're really getting excited about is adventure cabins, like the Airbnbs that Airbnb wants to put on the front page because like crazy tree houses or something like this, right? It's crazy the rate of return because your cost base isn't the same. Mm. You can build that so much cheaper than a single family home and it might rent for more than the single family home, yep. you know? Anyways, that's, that's, awesome. that's our latest excitement. So I'm, I'm interested in your wisdom. What is it? What is the what is the key to lead gen for real estate crowdfunding that most people don't understand? The key, well, one of the main keys is having a system in place in order to act on those leads when you get them. Like we would do warm transfers. So if somebody filled out our form, they were driven from the street.com or wherever it might be to our landing page, you're looking to invest in, in equity crowdfunding, yes, in real estate, yes, in debt or equity, yes. This is my my, my range. The moment they fill that out it would go to our call center in, in Long Island. And somebody would call you immediately. And they would say, hey, Jess, did you just fill out this form? Yes. Would you like to talk to somebody at Realty Mogul? That'd be great. Form transfer, boom. I had big platforms that would call me and say, your leads, like, what are you talking about? Oh, the 1% conversion rate. Well, what's your process? Well, we call them between seven and 10 days after they filled out the form. I'm like, somebody <laughs> might fill out 10 forms a day on their phone or online. They don't know who you are and they don't want to invest in there's real, there's real hard costs in creating that, that system for following up and closing. So if, if you have not just calls that are having people on your staff who are dedicated to taking those calls and, you know, warm, warm transfers, we call them. That's the biggest thing, you know, or they would get their email opt-in and there was no drip. There was like, there was no welcome email. There was no consistent, like there's, it's amazing. Like they just think that didn't build the relationship, huh? They didn't build a relationship. And the fact is like, I don't care what your returns are. There's a lot of other options out there for these people to go put their 10, 20, 50, hundred grand in. Um, and they're popping up. I've seen so many more, you know, it used to be like a patch of land in these companies. Now there's, this is probably a hundred different options for real estate investing for these accredited investors, you know? Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit back to, what you're doing these days. I'm interested, let's say you have some top executive who wants to make it to the C-suite or needs board approval for something. And you're saying like, okay, this is like a life-changing, this is a life-changing thing for this, for this leader. What are you doing from a strategy perspective? What's the mindset you bring to a challenge like that? Well, the first thing is 
usually the people they think their stakeholders are are not the full list of their stakeholders. So it's really getting them to identify who is a stakeholder in this process and this outcome and and what are the common advantages for those people for supporting you in your endeavor. So I mean, a lot of people bat around the term hero's journey or heroine's journey for female executives, but I basically do a series of really detailed story arcs, which is, hey, this is Jess's story as a CEO. This is the company's story from inception till now. This is their industry's story in real estate crowdfunding. And this is specifically Jess or the company's thesis on where his industry is going in 18 to 36 months. There might be 50 data points on each of those maps, 200 total. When we collapse them into one frame, there might be 10 common points. Now we have the basis for content marketing, thought leadership, a board pitch, whatever it might be. And it's like, you walk into the room, our industry is going here. Our company is the one to lead it because of XYZ, backed by data, not just because I say so. And Jess is the person to lead this company in this time to this outcome. And they see themselves as stakeholders that have, I call it 2.0. There's a definite before and after this goal is accomplished where they see themselves at because there's tangible rewards for them. So once once they know that, it, you know, there's a whole process that comes out of this. It's a long process, but that's that's the biggest thing. It's being able to say, I'm telling a good story, not just because I'm a good salesman, but it's backed by data over my career, the company's career, where the industry's going. And there's no other person that's better in this seat to lead us there than me. And that's why you should give me your advocacy and everything that I'm asking for. You know, And they'll gladly, <laughs> at that point, they gladly will. And I've had people, clients, walk into board meetings and try to get a two, three-year marketing budget approval, whatever it might be, a CMO. And... They said, I didn't even have to go into the deck, like the metrics, the numbers, like I literally blew out this this visual narrative story map and they understood. They understood everything. They understood how our customers are going to benefit more than more than others, how they're going to benefit. So yeah, it's, it's figuring out that stakeholder map and what exactly you have to deliver that's unique based on your history, you know, your successes and your failures. Like what's your unique treasure from everything it took you or your company to get to this point? You know... I love that answer. Um, and one of the things is I feel like you were saying, you were bringing up like all these stakeholders, the people who could veto this choice or whatever, right? If it's not about me and what I want, it's about the what's in it for you. You know, like yeah. if implied in that is like, and let me tell you what your stock options are worth if I can get this done for you. <laughs> like, you don't, you probably don't have to be that explicit, but like, as you were saying that, I was thinking, hey, that's got a great what's in it for them factor for everybody who's listening. Yeah. One of my first clients when I started coaching six board. years ago was a venture backed company and they had just done an A round and they took money from a strategic investor. And when I came on board, the strategic investor offered them a buyout. They were like, we just want to acquire you. And I'll, I never did this again after that, but I took equity as part of my compensation because they were a smaller company. And then all of a sudden I had a conflict of interest. It's like, I'd like to buy a house with what my equity will be worth, but it's not in the best interest for you, your other investors, the life and blood of this company. So I advised against it and they actually did take my advice. But yeah, it's, you know, that you need to think about everybody else involved and why exponentially it's better for them to follow you than to you know, investor capital and time and resources somewhere else. Back another horse. Love it. I think this is a great place to end for part one. Everybody, please tune into part two. I've got a whole bunch more questions for Damon, including about his time in Hollywood. So if that's not a good enough hook, I don't know what it is. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>